0: When in doubt, think of Gandhi. Gandhi said that we must go to the last man or the last woman today. I would say, and he also said there's a difference between literacy and education. Literacy is what you get from reading and writing in schools and colleges. But education is what you get from your family, from your environment, and from your community. We are not addressing that issue of education. Alvin Toffler said in, uh, future will not be someone who can't read and write, but it will be someone who can't learn, unlearn and relearn. Today, I think that process has to begin. Learn, unlearn and relearn. So if someone wants to address this issue or wants to help out in this whole area, I think we should capitalize on the resources that already exist in the village and build on that.
1: Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head.
0: What we need to do in radically deep problems
1: is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. So here's today's question. How do you create a global movement impacting millions of lives, when your entire task force can't read, write, or even speak a common language. Now, when I first emailed today's guest, having hunted him down on the internet to invite him onto the show, this was his reply. I am totally mystified as to why on earth you want to talk to an old Gandhian man living in the middle of the Rajasthan desert. My email back. I actually can't think of a better reason to want to talk to you. This exchange is the perfect introduction to the humility and the humour of Bunker Roy. Bunker is a global change maker, founder of the Barefoot College movement in India, and listed as one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people. His TED Talk, "Learning from a Barefoot Movement," has been watched by over four and a half million people. The Barefoot College has taught over three million mainly illiterate or semi-literate rural people, predominantly women, from some of the world's poorest villages to become teachers, midwives, weavers, architects, and doctors. This includes training over 1,700 grandmothers or I love this. Solar mamas, as they are known within their communities now, from rural villages across 95 countries, including India, Sierra Leone, Africa and Afghanistan, to become solar engineers. Now, these women, once they have trained as solar engineers, then go home to their communities and solar electrify their villages, to date powering a total of 60,000 homes across the world and saving more than 1 million litres of kerosene from polluting the environment. And if that just isn't all incredible enough, each one of these solar mamas was fully trained in under six months using mainly sign language. Now this conversation goes in so many different and beautiful directions on the topic of what it really takes to influence from a place of both fierce determination, but also patience. The topics we covered include how he went from an elite education to digging wells in the villages of rural India, completely rearranging the course of his life. Why there are more powerful languages than the spoken word for creating engagement, inclusion, and most importantly, highly technical skill. The power of dignity and autonomy, and you're going to love this story, why a 12-year-old girl, illiterate girl, from a rural village was able to meet a queen and introduce herself as the prime minister. What it takes to build a movement from scratch and sustain that movement for almost 50 years, including Bunker's own unique perspective on stepping back up from disappointment. And finally, why we need to stop searching for solutions outside of ourselves, our communities and our teams and start looking within. So if there's a movement or a change that you want to drive right now, but you just don't know where to start, this episode is 100% for you. For me, I I realize just how many times in my life and in my business, I fall before the altar of expertise, hoping that if I can just throw enough money at a problem, just bring in the exact right person with the exact right qualifications, everything will work itself out. And you know, sometimes that does happen. However, more frequently, I end up realizing once again that a team of passionately imperfect individuals making Passionately imperfect contributions, making it up as they go along, making mistakes, getting back up off the floor, but staying deeply committed to both the outcome and each other, that will run rings over even the brightest PhD. It's very easy to step over what you have in the rush to find a magic button. It is so much harder to step back and allow the people right in front of you to rise. And for those of you who are looking to rise to the next level this year, don't forget to hop onto my website or the show notes and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven strategies that I have found hands down to be the most powerful when it comes to fast tracking your level of influence, either in your career, in your business, or in your industry. Just head on over, pop in your email address, and it will jump straight into your inbox. Also, my last ever, last ever rapid authority masterclass will be run straight after Easter. This is the last time I will ever be running it live. So for those of you not already on the wait list, make sure you register via the website and to find out when the doors are going to open before anybody else. For those of you who are hoping to attend live in February, I am so sorry that we had to postpone. COVID ran through my household and as we, you would think we're pretty used to doing by now, we just had to pivot. However, if you want to attend, I look forward to seeing you straight after Easter. But for now, sit back, scroll slowly, cycle on, and enjoy a truly wise Gandhian living in the middle of the Rajasthan Desert, Bunkarul. Welcome to the podcast, Bunker Roy. So good to have you here.
0: I'm delighted to be with you, Julie.
1: Tell me. So before we're going to jump into your journey, we're going to jump into um, everything that you've done on the course of your your lifetime's work. But before we do, there's one question that I always ask at the beginning, and that question is: um, Is there one idea or notion that's really having a big impact on your thinking right now? That's really influencing you? It can be old, it can be timeless, it can be new. Is there one idea that's really sticking with you at the moment?
0: I'm very concerned how people globally are looking at the problems of poverty and how poverty is increasing. The the gap between the rich and poor, especially in the rural areas, globally is increasing. And I'm very concerned that not enough attention is being paid to problems that exist in the rural areas all over the world and how they are trying to solve it with very expensive, centralized solutions. You know, for the traditional knowledge, skills, and wisdom of people, rural people all over the world are being marginalized, are being looked down upon, and we should bring all this into mainstream thinking. So this is on top of my mind. Why is it that there are so many people who are doing so much for poverty in rural areas, and they are not addressing this major issue? Or what already exists, what already exists in rural areas and why they are not why they're not addressing it, why they're not respecting it, why they're not applying it, this is a major concern for me. Over fifty years, I've seen this happening wherever I've been, I've been all over the world, ninety six countries around the world, and I see this happening all the time. how the gap is increasing, how people are being marginalized. So is there a way of addressing this? Will this make a difference? if someone hears your podcast that they actually haven't i will look at this very seriously because this is something which is going to get worse not better but
1: well, that's i mean let's speak to that just for for a second here if there i mean there are many people who listen to the podcast so if somebody is looking at that and wants to contribute or support or help because i think often there's a feeling of powerlessness right that the, you know It sounds serious, but what can I do? So how would you answer that question?
0: When in doubt, think of Gandhi. Gandhi said that we must go to the last man or the last woman today. I would say, and he also said there's a difference between literacy and education. Literacy is what you get from reading and writing in schools and colleges. But education is what you get from your family, from your environment, and from your community we are not addressing that issue of education. You know, as Al- Al- Alvin Toffler said in the uh, future, will not be someone who can't read and write, but it will be someone who can't learn, unlearn, and relearn. Today, I think that process has to begin. Learn, unlearn, and relearn. So if someone wants to address this issue or wants to help out in this whole area, <clears throat> I think we should capitalize on the resources that already exist in the village and build on that. For instance, if you have a woman who comes from a village who's illiterate, who's never been outside her village in her life, and we take her out of that community with the endorsement of the community, bring her into India and train her to be a solar engineer. Now, some, some people say that's impossible, but that is very possible because we've done it in 95 countries around the world, and there have been over 1,700 women from illiterate, from, from non-electrified villages around the world, courtesy government of India, who have come to the Barefoot College in India. And in within six months, through sign language, not the written or spoken word, become solar engineers and gone back and solar electrified their own villages. So why can't we replicate this? Why can't we scale this up? This is something so absurdly simple and people don't just get it. So when His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, came to came to uh, the Barefoot College, he, he said something very profound. He said, now that you've shown the Barefoot College working in practice, let's see if the experts and all these people can make it work in theory because they haven't got it. I think the solutions are there staring at us in the face. We don't need someone to do studies and pre-studies and post-studies. It's there, right there in front of you. The problem of water. Why can't we look at collecting rainwater instead of taking water out of the ground? That's so expensive. Simple solutions that I've heard that I learned from the people in the villages today. So, if some expert comes to me with a fancy degree to me and says I've got a solution, I don't. I don't listen to him. I say I. I listen to the man on the ground. I listen to the person who's done it on the ground and been surviving in these um, uh, conditions for fifty for many years. So. Why can't we do this? What's wrong with this?
1: I want to go back to the beginning of your journey just for a second, and I love that you you talk about your journey as a love story. Which, from the first moment that I came across your work, I loved. I loved that. Why? Why do you describe your work and you know the decades of your work as a love story? In
0: 1965, I went to a famine in Bihar, and I saw hunger, starvation, and death for the first time. I. I, I came from a very secluded background, came from a very elitist background. And I, had, I hadn't seen this part of India at all because I was protected and said, this is not a part which uh, uh, you, sh- you should be looking at going abroad and doing something with yourself rather than going back into the villages. But when I had those, uh, that experience for about a month, living with these villages, I thought I had to do something in return so the love story started in 1965 when i went to these villages for the first time and then i went back and i said that i'd like to live and work in a village and uh, see what i can do in a very small way at that time i was the indian national squash champion i went to australia twice played the world greatest in australia Ken jeff hunt and his school all these people are names which are Now in legends in Australian squash. So after that, I went back and started becoming an unskilled laborer digging wells. I said, I'd like to dig wells and see what um, what I could, how I could help tangibly, how I could see that. So I would go down a 100 feet well and put in explosives and take water and see if water could come out. And so these wells, uh, we managed to uh, make. To revitalize. And uh, so the love story started with water, started with living and working with very poor communities. And it has stayed on because I see whatever little I can make, whatever contribution I can make in a very small way, I see the sparkle in the eyes, I see hope, I see it happening in front of me. And that makes a big difference. So the love story continues. I haven't given up.
1: I I love the story that you told about the day you came home and told your mother what you wanted to do, that you wanted to go and and dig wells in a village for five years, not for a gap year, no, but for five years, and she was, some might say understandably, given your education, the education you had been given, pretty upset about that, and you said this beautiful thing. You said, you gave me the best education, and it made me think, and I just thought, as a parent, isn't that why we give our children access hopefully to the best education that we're able to do? so that they're able to think.
0: But it also gave me courage. It also gave me a feeling that I can do it. And if I got the best education in India, I should be able to do something about it and not listen to parents. If it is within you, it's in your heart that you want to do something. I don't think anyone should stop you. And even if they try and stop you, it'll make you more determined than ever. And this is what happened with me. You know. It just, and She went into a coma and I said, well, uh, uh, no job, no money, no prospect, what are you going to do? I said, let me see if I can survive. Let me see if I, can, if I can stick it out. And if I can't, I'll come back to you. But if I can, then let me go. So I think it's important that this uh, feeling that young people who want to make up, who want to do something, should not be prevented by their parents. I have in the Barefoot College very young people today in their 20s and 30s. And the biggest problem they have is with their parents. And they just cannot, and they, they want to do something worthwhile, tangible on the ground, something that will make them feel satisfied. But it's the parents that come in the way. So I think there's something wrong with the education system today. Even at that time, even now, they just don't understand that these young people want to do something with their hands. They don't want to get a fancy degree going abroad. They want to do something which can be worthwhile well for the communities where they stay and live and work.
1: And you, after you had gone, so you, you left obviously, and you said some, the most extraordinary thing, you said rather than I gave them, as in I gave to the villagers the most extraordinary knowledge and skills, which is perhaps how some people would view the decision that I'm, I've come to give. You said, no, I, you said I was exposed to. I was exposed to the most extraordinary knowledge and skills. In these in these villages, can you give can you give some examples of what those skills were on the ground?
0: There was a Belgian priest who was looking, who was a who, who they said was a water diviner. So I um, Anglican, um, Anglican priest, and this uh, man was going with a stick, going around looking for water, and I laughed. I said, "What is this? This is mumbo jumbo to me." So the priest called me and said. Uh, hold the stick. I said, well, i uh, hold the stick. Make me looking very foolish. He said, now walk around. I walked, and then he said, stop. He put his hand on my shoulder, and the stick went up. And he said, now bring it down. I said, um, <laughs> he said, now bring the stick down. So I was struggling to bring the stick down, but it wouldn't come down. So he gave me some, I still remember what he said to this day. He said, never laugh at things you don't know. There is so much happening that you cannot understand. It's not written in the books. It's something that you have to experience and feel. So whenever I do some water development, looking for wells today, I ask the geologists and geophysicists for the for the location, but then I go to the water diviner and I say, it's time to see if there's water here or not. And sure enough, 90% there is water. There is water. He can make out brackish water from sweet water. So I think there is something there we can't look down on. Today, the, the knowledge, skills, and wisdom that very poor people have is phenomenal. The whole barefoot college has been built by someone who can't read and write. And he got the Aga Khan Award for Architecture. And, then, and uh, all the architects got up in arms and protested to them, saying, how can you give this guy who's illiterate uh, uh, the Aga Khan Award for Architecture? I said, well, he built the college. It's not collapsed, it's still, it doesn't leak, it's fantastic, it's aesthetic, functional. So why shouldn't you get it? But I, I, I returned the award because the whole architect community was up in
1: I want to touch, let, let's go to Barefoot College now. So built, um, was an idea that you had come up with. It was built in 1986 and it, so 12 architects built it who can't read or write, um, And I think you said that it was a one and a half dollars per square foot to build, and it built it won an architecture award. Just can you talk a little bit about the architecture award that it won?
0: It's called the Nobel Prize for Architecture, the Aga Khan Award for Architecture. So when someone came and had a look at it and saw the bare saw the barefoot architects at work, just applying the knowledge, skills, and wisdom they already have onto the buildings that they had. They've been doing it for years. They built off their houses. (laughs) So (laughs) when we did that and uh, then uh, there was a very famous famous architect called Charles Courier who was also on the jury and he said that these people deserve it because this is something which is out of the out of the box. This is something that we never considered. We've always looked at people who have got degrees and so on and these people have been doing this on so we got the architect award, and the, the architects went and got it from the Aga Khan himself in Paris. And they were all wearing turbans and all that, and everyone was quite, quite surprised that these 12 people who were wearing turbans had come to Paris to get the Aga Khan Award. But then after that, there was a huge reaction by the architect community in India, and so we returned the award. But then uh, that was a good story for us.
1: The award was $50,000, but you returned it. Why did you return it?
0: Because they were insulting the barefoot architects. And these barefoot architects are everywhere in the world, not only in India. They build their own buildings. So I thought it would be a good gesture to recognise and respect the knowledge and skills of architects, barefoot architects who never learned, gone to school and college, can't read and write, but still build marvellous buildings. So we returned it. I think that was a gesture which they didn't expect, but I
1: did. And that kind of links back to something else um, that I know you believe deeply, which is that the skills of these barefoot communities are not identified, they're not respected, which we touched on at the beginning, and that they're not applied at a large scale. And yet, you know, these skills go back generations. These skills are, are deep and just because there's not a certificate to hang on a wall doesn't mean that these skills aren't incredible and can't be recognised and then taught and amplified.
0: And this is scalable. This just requires a bit of common sense. You just go and live in a village and you find that these problems exist and these sol- solutions are also there staring at you in the face. So the barefoot college role is to identify those skills and apply them on a large scale. Not only to keep it in India, but abroad as well. And these skills are... uh, you can recognize them in an African village, in a Pacific village, in a Southeast Asian village. All of them have that skill, which is just waiting to be recognized and applied. And I don't see any obstacle for anyone to say, look, if you're looking for a solution on water, looking for a solution on health, why don't you go to these barefoot doctors and barefoot teachers and barefoot dentists and barefoot all these are available right there in enormous, huge, extraordinary numbers, but you don't apply them, you don't recognize them, you don't look at them. You, the first thing you'd ask is a stupid question, what is your qualification? What does it matter? What does a qualification matter? This is what is the biggest problem here today, I think.
1: When you first you started Barefoot College, you built it, obviously you know it made waves. made waves when you built it. But you said that there was some pushback from pushback within the community against college. How did you, how did you get it moving? How did you get people to trust you enough to come?
0: I think anyone who starts an organization like like the Barefoot College has to set an example. The example you have to set is simplicity, is austerity, is um, collective decision-making is transparency and accountability. This is something which are non-negotiables. This is absolutely a must if you want people to join you. So the first thing they ask, or the first thing they see is, how do you live? Are you, have, you got an extraordinary, have you got an extravagant lifestyle? Have you got a fancy car? Have you got something that uh, um, sets us apart from the rest? All these things they, they look at, they observe very carefully. And so when they come and join me, they, these things matter to them very much. So the difference between the people who run an organization and the community should be very little. The distance uh, politically, socially, culturally should be very different. So I, the first thing I said was that I don't mind if you're illiterate, just join me. What, 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 what am I looking for? I'm looking for compassion. I'm looking for patience. I'm looking for tolerance. I'm looking for someone who has the human qualities to be able to deal with people. And then eventually, you can become an engineer. You can become an artist. You can become a communicator. You can become a puppeteer. It doesn't matter if you don't have that degree. So I'm looking for the human being behind it. And that uh, is what. Made the barefoot college a bit. Different. There's no hierarchy. There's no hierarchy. There's a, there's a structure, but no hierarchy.
1: And you had said that one of the first things you did was you, which I just I love was you redefined the word professionalism. And so, rather than professionalism being qualifications, you know, um, having been to school, completed school, you redefined it as a combination of competence, confidence, and belief. What, why was that so important to redefine the word? Because
0: professionalism has been the word has been misused. It has actually gone into a completely different uh, direction, and I wanted to bring it down, especially if it re- refers to the rural areas. That there's a different kind of professionalism that's required in a rural area. So, you know, there's no urban solution to a rural problem. There are rural solutions to a rural problem. And for the rural solutions, you need rural professionals. And the definition of professionals has to change. It cannot be standard, it cannot be universal, it has to be rural. And that made it a big difference because then a lot of people identified with that uh, definition, redefinition of professionals, and then they came because they didn't feel feel that they were uh, looked down upon just because they didn't know how to read and write. Because we think that literacy is not a barrier. Cannot be illiteracy cannot be a barrier to someone who wants to uh, become a professional, a para-professional. So this uh, made a big difference, especially in the mindsets of lots of people who came and worked with me. And this not only worked in uh, Barefoot College in in Rajasthan, but we extended this whole idea into other parts of India. So young people who didn't have the qualification came and joined me in Barefoot College, and then we. Encourage them to go back to their states. So now we have about twenty-three barefoot colleges in thirteen states of India, all following this simple message. that just because you can't read and write does not mean you cannot become a professional. You cannot become an engineer.
1: And you teach in the most wonderful, wonderfully imaginative, like completely unexpected ways. And you know, one of the things on this podcast, I interviewed a uh, horse whisperer a while ago and and she trains horses. And part of training training a wild horse, you get into a ring with a wild horse, you don't have language, right? Like you have to use your body in a way to be able to get that horse to trust you. And similarly for you, you had to find ways that didn't involve language to teach. What were some of the ways that you found to do that?
0: We've had many instances where 40 women from different parts of the world are sitting on one table and they're all chatting with each other not understanding a word because they're all speaking Zola or speaking French and speaking Spanish and speaking Creole. But when it comes to working with the hands, they're all the same. When it comes to giving, providing, transferring skills, showing how to make a charge controller, not looking at theory, but only practice. Then they all get it. Within six months, they can make a charge controller, they can, make, they can install, fabricate, and repair and maintain solar, sophisticated 21st century solar systems um, without any problem at all. So when we did this in Afghanistan, uh, this woman went and solar electrified the first village in Afghanistan. And then she went and sat with the men. And the men said, what do you think you're doing? You should be sitting one kilometer away with the women on the other side. And she said, no, today I am not a woman, I'm an engineer. And I have every right to sit with you today. And it hit them between the eyes that for the first time, there was a woman engineer in Afghanistan, right there in the village itself. So these small messages made a world of a difference in providing them confidence and competence to women who had never, ever got this opportunity and chance to do that. So I think when they were all sitting together with 40 women, they all got the feeling of solidarity. They all got the feeling of confidence. They all got the feeling that they were not alone. So when someone asked a woman there, uh, you know, are you missing uh, home? She said, no, I'm having the time of my life because for the first time. The husband has to look after the children for six months and they have to cook for six months. So when I come back, they value me much more, apart from being a solar engineer, but they value me much more. So it's these sort of examples that really Give the women the confidence that they need.
1: I, I think it's just worth just diving a little bit deeper into into that particular story because you took you went over to Afghanistan. You took was it one woman from Afghanistan? Brought her back to India?
0: No, we took three. You took three. <coughs> we took three women. Three women. And the three women could one, one woman. They weren't allowed to come alone, so we brought the husbands as well. We had to bring the husbands too. (laughs)
1: In six months, via sign language, because obviously you had the, the language barrier, in six months you had taught them how to become solar engineers via sign language. They then went on to solar power, the first ever village in Afghanistan. How many villages have been solar powered in Afghanistan now, thanks to those three, you training those three women?
0: Those three women in turn trained more women in Afghanistan. So last heard, I heard there were about 100 villages which had been solar electrified by women themselves. But this was 2006-2007. I don't know what's happened now. But at that time, these women were actually trainers. They went back and, and so <clears throat> we made a film on um, this experience um, on the ordinary heroes of Afghanistan. And uh, I went to the U.N. at that time and I said, look, uh, guess how much it cost me to bring the women to India, train them for six months, buy the solar equipment and get, send it back and solar electrify the villages, the four or five villages that they did. Guess how much it cost me? So the U.N. had no idea what to say. I said, well, it, cost, it is the cost of one U.N. consultant sitting for one year in Kabul, $150,000. And they were mystified. They said, what is this? I said, yes, this is what it cost me. So why aren't you solar electrifying, electrifying more villages there? What is preventing you from doing something so, so simple? What is, what is it? Where is the barrier here?
1: And what is it? I mean, I'm just as curious, talking to you, as what it is.
0: Mindset problem. Mindset problem. They just can't look at it simply. They can't look at simple solutions. It has to be complicated. The fact is that if... You know, everyone feels that you have to learn how to read and write to be an engineer. This is a myth. This is a myth. If you are prepared to meet them halfway and you're prepared to uh, train, the trainers also are illiterate. You see, this is a big difference. It's the trainers who are training illiterate women and the, the trainers are also illiterate. So this makes a big difference to them feeling, look, if she can do it, I can do it as well. And that gives them the more determination. today. I
1: remember you saying that um, probably the only school on the planet that if you have a PhD or a master's degree, you're actually disqualified from the school. You can't come in.
0: Correct, correct, correct. But you have to start from scratch. You can't just feel that just because you've got a degree makes you superior. And there are many people today in the Barefoot College who have actually uh, adjusted to the fact that the person who is training them or uh, being there uh, uh, looking after the section is someone who is intellectually uh, far superior but just happens incidentally that he doesn't have a degree and qualification and this adjustment has been very very uh, well received by the youngsters who are now in the barefoot college today the fact that they respect the skill they respect this knowledge they respect the background that these people come from which are very poor very very uh, 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 very, very um, uh, uh, hard uh, lives they have led and um, and I think they've risen from that uh, from that situation
1: I, I would love to hear you tell the story about Sierra Leone and the president of Sierra Leone.
0: I went to Sierra Leone. I went to this small remote village in Sierra Leone. The cuts told me that these women are just right to bring to India. Her name is Nancy Kano. So Nancy Kanu uh, came to India, uh, courtesy government of India, through a program called the India Technical Economic Corporation, which came for six months, went back and solar electrified the village. And one day, this minister of education was, mm-hmm. was driving down to Freetown. And he saw this in the middle of the darkness. He saw this village totally lit up. And he was curious. He went into the. Village and said, "What is this?" He said, "This whole village is solar-electrified. How did this happen?" He said, "Oh, this mad Indian came and took us away to India. And uh, and, <laughs> and he gave us this skill, and we went back and solar-electrified our own village. So he went straight to the president of Sierra Leone and said, "You know, there's a solar-electrified village in your country?" He had no idea. So the next day, half the cabinet went and saw Nancy Pado and said, what's the study? Who is this? What happened? How did it happen? So Nancy in her own way went and explained to her. So then the um, president said, wow, I will build the first barefoot training center in Sierra Leone. And he built it for in 2010. And in 2011, I went and the president invited me to, uh, you know, to be a part of the inauguration process. And at that time, there were about 50 solar mamas what the Prime Minister of India calls them solar mamas now. So these solar mamas were there uh, right now in the inauguration. And Nancy gave an impassioned speech in front of about 3,000 to 4,000 people. And the president turned to me and said, she's going to be a problem. I said, yes, Minister. Yes, Prime Minister. (laughs) You're going to have a problem with her because now she's charged up. There's no question that you're going to stop her from doing that. So now she's Lady Nancy Kanu. And uh, quite a hit i think that's that's a success story so now he said have yeah, i want you to i want you to train in this training center uh about uh, 50 women every year from non-electrified villages and and nancy said sure you give me the resources i'll i'll, I'll give you the results real gutsy woman absolutely charged up. Really scared the hell out of the president, yeah. <laughs> T-
1: tell me why um, Why you specifically decided to start training grandmothers. Um, I remember you, you saying, you know, what's the best tech for spreading the word? It's not the telephone or the telegram, it's the telewoman. That's right. <laughs> why grandmothers, though?
0: You know, in Africa, in many traditional societies, you're a grandmother of 35 you are already a grandmother you you marry early you produce children early between 35 and 45 you're already a grandmother so grandmother sounds nice because when you look at the west they think oh god 70 60 80 not uh, what's this but these are mature women Uh, they are uh, accepted they're respected and they uh, and they're all uh, um <clears throat> They have the sparkle in their eyes. Whenever I go to these communities and I speak to them, I can see the sparkle in their eyes and they're all dying to go, dying to go. Uh, and uh, so I have to do the selection very carefully because it's the first time ever they're going to go to India, fly in a plane for the first time, go 19 hours in a plane. Uh, that doesn't worry them at all. So, uh, but I have to get the endorsement of the husband. Husband has to say yes. And husband, Mamas and now, but the whole community piles on to him and says, You better say yes, because this is the first time you never get some woman going into becoming a solar engineer. So many husbands say, Okay, go, but I will take another woman. I can't wait for six months. Let them go. So she goes. She goes with that threat on her her head. And she comes, solar liquidized.
1: I'm sorry, I'm just, no one can see my face now, but my face just did something quite incredible I didn't think my face could do that really yes
0: and then they would go in spite of what the husband's uh, the threats on on the head they would go and come back and solar electrify the village and then the husband would be in total awe you couldn't understand that this woman who's a nobody had become such a uh, such a asset to the village so the husband would say come back Uh, and many of the women would say no thank you very much I'm all right now I don't need you I can solar electrify my own village. Lots of people would say, No, no, come on, get married. So she said, No, no, I'm all right. Thank you very much. I'm very confident. I've got, I've got my skill. I've got respect. I've got people outside wanting to know how I'm doing it. All the other people from the villages are asking me to come and solar electrify the village. So I'm very busy now. Thank you very much. I don't need to. So success stories like that, I think, make it worthwhile when these women come to India.
1: I wanted to talk about the night schools for children because um, I know that it's true that I think you said that 60% of, of children work during the day. They have jobs. They have jobs within their families, their communities, their villages. And so you realized that if we're going to be able to create some kind of schooling for these children, it needs to happen at night. And so the night school began. But there was something very special about the night school that I wanted to touch on, and that was the election process of the night school. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Since 1975, when we, <coughs> when we came up with this idea of night schools for children, shepherd boys and girls who can't uh, go in the morning to school, to the government school, but they have time at night. So we started these night schools. With kids with kerosene lamps in those days in 1975, now they're all solar lanterns, and all very bright and cheerful. But we said that there was only one way of making them uh, learn about democracy, about citizenship, about how you should vote, how you should choose your leader. So we came up with this idea of a children's parliament. And because more girls came to school than boys. Uh, most of the girls became the prime ministers, were elected as prime ministers in the children's parliament. Of course, the boys objected. I said, no, the boys can be leaders of opposition or speaker of the House, but you can't be the prime minister because all the girls have selected their prime ministers. So over the last year, 10 years, we've had all prime ministers who will be girls. So they got the World Children's Prize in about six, seven years ago. And this girl had to go to receive the prize from the Queen of Sweden. And uh, uh, she went and got the prize. And the Queen of Sweden was absolutely awestruck by this young girl who had never been outside a village in her life, not dazzled by Sweden Sweden or Stockholm at all. And she turned to me and said, please ask her where she got her confidence from. So I asked her, I said, "Uh, where did you get your confidence from? So she looked at the queen straight in the eye and said, "Please tell her I'm the prime minister. I'm the prime minister." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and,
1: oh, to have been <laughs> a fly on the wall
0: in that moment, she was absolutely extraordinary. She just wasn't dazzled by anything around her, uh, and
1: um, and it's no, it's. it's- it's no nominal, you know. You say prime minister, and, and you know every five years they vote as to who who they want to be the prime minister of of their cohort. But it's not it's not just a title. I mean, I've I've got written down here that once you are the prime minister, you have a cabinet, so you have a minister for education, a minister for health, but you are in charge of one hundred and fifty okay. schools. Seven thousand children that this prime minister is doing outside of their full time job.
0: Well, it's it's not really a full time job. I mean, that is their life. The life is to look after sheep and goats in the morning, but she's prime minister in the evening. And in the evening, she has a cabinet. She has the minister of energy, minister of education, minister of women, and they decide on a cabinet meeting what how the schools, the night schools, should be supervised, administered, and um, and uh, and all the decisions that the prime minister and the cabinet take have to be followed by the barefoot college because she is the prime minister after all. There's no way that we cannot go by that. So if if, if some teacher <coughs> beats a child in school, the prime minister writes a postcard to me. If the if, if the solar lantern is not working, the prime minister writes, or the minister for light uh, education writes, sort of, saying this solar lantern is not working, fix it for us. So we have to we have to follow all these uh, details. So I, they're very powerful now, very powerful. on these prime ministers.
1: Do you ever have to? Do you ever have to step in? I'm just thinking. I mean, these are these are 12 years. These these I'll say children, but these ministers are, are 12 years old. Do you? Is there ever a moment where you think I think I'm going to like they're at an impasse, they're arguing. I feel like I may have to step in now, or is it just completely self sufficient?
0: Well, symbolically, I'm the president. So the prime minister has to come to me and uh, take an oath of office. So the oath of office has to be taken in front of me. And should there be a crisis, a cabinet crisis, that some woman or some girl who comes from a higher caste or a low caste is creating some problems in these places, then it comes to me officially from the prime minister saying this is the problem I'm having. You have to sort this out for me because this is beyond my control. So this is where the community comes in. This is where the teacher comes in. You know, the night school is not a school. It's a place of learning and unlearning. So I'm saying that night school is not only the job of a teacher. Even a traditional midwife is a teacher. Even a weaver is a teacher. Even a leather worker is a teacher, because they have a skill that they must share with the students. So I'm saying that this night school should be open to all. It's not the job of a teacher only. It's also the job of the whole community to learn. How do you? How do you? What happens if you get arrested by a police? What happens? How do you measure your land? These are real, down-to-earth life problems which we actually expose them in the night schools. So it's not only about reading and writing. It's much, much more than that.
1: Mm. Which would make you know conflict resolution if they do have a conflict, conflict resolution would just become one of those life skills, one of the many life skills that the community is able to impart.
0: Correct. And they apply that in the real-life situations because most of them, power goes to the heads and say, can I be a prime minister again? I said, no, you can't be a prime minister again. You have to go through the whole election process. You just can't, you know. But he he said lots of other people are doing it in the elders. I said, yeah, that's what you should be learning about. How they wanted to be president and prime ministers for life. So you have to go through the whole process. You can't be prime minister forever. You have to. But they take these life skills in the, uh, when they go outside these night schools, and most of them uh, uh, apply them. So when I meet the old prime ministers and they come and see me, uh, they are still as confident and cocky and courageous as ever. And I think, I think the husbands are scared of them. But anyway, I think we did a good job there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> some, some life skills that um sounds like that plenty of politicians around the world can probably probably do with those life skills um i want to talk about you for a second we've been to, we you know we've talked about barefoot college and we've talked about the the incredible women and and solar engineering and, and the children i want to talk about you i mean you when you and i first started, started talking about this interview you said you know there was a lot of attention after the ted talk that you did, which I think at last count had about four and a half million views. Did things change significantly after you did that TED (coughs) talk?
0: I got lots of attention because at that time they said I had more hits than Bill Gates. I said, I don't know about that. I have no idea, but um, (coughs) important thing was that lots of people started coming around and wanting to know what the barefoot college is all about. And it became very irritating because lots of people started coming just because of the TED Talk uh, to the Barefoot College. And uh, uh, it wasn't positive for me because if it had some spillover, which made it, which uh, something happened, we, made it, we managed to raise some money, we managed to spread the idea, it didn't work out that way quite as much as it should. Because I think the people who go to these TED Talks are not the people who. Uh, uh, have that sort of uh, inclination. Uh, I believe the TED talks are very expensive. When I went to Scotland, it was about six thousand dollars or something to get there, and the people can't afford this this money. So it's not. And it was a full house. So I was wondering mm. where these people came from, but they didn't have that sort of la- love for uh, the work at the village level. I think they were they were. They were attracted by the whole idea, but when it came to action and following it up, very few had that capacity, sadly mm. speaking. Sadly so I was speaking.
1: wondering because you were, you know, you were Time Magazine, 100 Most Influential People, I think it was that year or the next year, and it, you know, you can really see this roller coaster that happened, and, and I was thinking, well, that would put you in touch with so many people that could make such a significant difference to the, to the to so this movement growing on a global scale, and it's interesting to hear that that's not that's not how it panned out because a lot of people that's all they would want. If I could just get that level of attention i could I could make it happen. But obviously that's not the way that this is going to work.
0: No, it didn't work that way. Very disappointing. But we made some good friends, lasting friends, influential friends. I think uh, president Clinton uh, Gave me the Global Citizen Award with with Malala and uh, Bloomberg that year, 2013, after the TED Talk. Uh, yeah, that sort of exposure was there. But other than that, the Barefoot Movement didn't didn't uh, it wasn't helpful. The TED Talk.
1: What do you think will work? If you, if you go out five years, ten years and imagine, you know, there are barefoot colleges in rural communities all around the world, teaching skills, lifting lifting themselves and each other, What's, what needs to happen in order for that to take place? What's the major barrier?
0: We need someone to believe in this barefoot approach. Someone has to internalize and say, this is the global solution today. That sort of internalization by many of these influential people hasn't happened. Because I think the fear of failure, the fear of putting in money where they think they'll be made a fool. I've found many people saying, look, I don't know whether this will work because someone has has advised me not to do it. I said, you know, you have to take their own decision and you have to be able to jump into this. Uh, one of the major supporters of ours, even though he hasn't given us any money, but he's been an extraordinary supporter, has been the Prince of Wales. The Prince of Wales has always supported whatever I'm doing. Wherever I am, he always says, come and see me, Bunker, because this uh, because this is what I believe in. It. This is what I want to do. And uh, he's, he tried to raise me some money from Windsor Castle. He had a special dinner for me at, at Windsor Castle, and the Prince of Wales called all the people who were the... Uh, people who had uh, money and uh, I think it was going by 10,000 uh, pounds a table and the table was chock-a-block full and didn't work out. Somehow or rather the Indians are not very generous when it comes to giving donations. So <laughs> Prince Charles, was he did as much as he could to do that, but it didn't work out. Something is wrong with the way we give money. Something is wrong. Something is wrong. They have to... Think that this is one, they have to go all the way. They can't be a piecemeal and give one donation here and one donation there. They have to go all the way and say, look, I believe in you, Banka, and let's go for it for the next five years. Let's go for it. And we could do that. It's possible. We have the capacity, we have the people, we have them all around. It's just a little tip that we, we need to push someone over the edge to say, All right, go for it. That is not happening. Sadly. I hope. With with your podcast, I I make a breakthrough. Um,
1: So do I. So do I. Why not? Exactly. Well, there's a lot of people listening all over the world. Who knows? (laughs) Who knows where this will go? What's... Who knows what's next? Who knows what's next for you? What's next? I mean, obviously, at one point it was ah. okay. Let's do this village, and then it was let uh, <coughs> Afghanistan, Sierra Leone, Africa. Um, what's next <laughs> for you? What what's next on Pacific your Pacific Islands?
0: I've been to the Pacific Islands. I went to the Pacific Islands. I went to nine of the Pacific Islands, and we chose some solar mamas from there, brought them to India. Now the government of India has given me some money to solar-electrified 2,800 houses in 14 Pacific countries. So right now, I'm in that. Right now, that's, that's been a breakthrough. So the government of India has also given me some money to set up five barefoot training centers all over Africa. So we have one in, Sur- we have, not in Sierra Leone sadly, we have one in Burkina Faso, we have one in Senegal, we have one in Tanzania, we hope to have one in Madagascar, and hopefully in Sudan. And in Sudan, uh, I think we have a breakthrough. Because I went to Sudan, I went to Darfur in those very problematic places of refugees. And uh, we brought some solar mamas from Sudan, from Darfur. And now they are now going to be the trainers of the first barefoot training center in Sudan and supported by UNDP. So things are happening, but too slow. We would like to accelerate this a bit more. And I think it is possible because people are looking for success stories. People are looking for solutions. People are fatigued giving money, which just doesn't seem to have any impact at all. And here is one solution staring at us in the face. And I think uh, let's see if there's a breakthrough here.
1: You have spoken before about um, Mahatma Gandhi's quote, which is first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you and then you win. And I've used that quote before with my daughter. Oh, wow. When she's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Just more to give her some, some context on her actions and, and the possible pushback and feeling like she's going against the grain in some way. What does, what does winning look like for you now?
0: I don't think I can say I'm winning. I'm heading the right direction winning is when i managed to get a lot of people around and own this whole barefoot model the barefoot model is a gandhian model it's a gandhian model which is simple which is scalable which is uh, doable and has the ownership and confidence of the community that is most important we can't do anything top down it has to be bottom up and to to get The endorsement of the barefoot model, you have to have the community also as a part of the process. You cannot isolate them. You cannot ignore them. You cannot marginalize them. So I think, for me, the winning is the winning of the hearts and minds of people, for me. And that is a very slow process. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't happen. But results show, when you have a woman coming from a village in the middle of the Kalahari Desert, and they come to India, and they go back and solar electrify the village, then it makes then they always talk about the barefoot model the fact that it has worked the fact that the woman has gone and come back so when i went there and uh, they very politely asked what sort of equipment are you going to send me from that uh, middle of the kalari desert i said very normally i said uh, <coughs> indian equipment and i got a standing ovation i said what happened he said, "Thank God, not Chinese equipment." I said, "Well, I was never thinking of that at all, but the fact is that these are equipment made in China with, with India and highly quality, high quality stuff, so most so the village in the middle of the Kalahari desert is solar electrified by Indian equipment. but we need much more than that. We need many more people, we need many more women, and uh, this snowballing of a movement, we have to have a woman to be. Uh, to feel that they're in the center of this. And we, don't, uh, we haven't managed to get that through because we're talking about rights of women. I mean, this is in itself a major right, the right to light, the right to educate, the right to skills. These are major rights which uh, we haven't been able to um, show enough of today.
1: Mm. The right of autonomy, the right of dignity.
0: A right of autonomy, right of dignity, all that is all that is in the solar mama concept,
1: all, mm. everyone. Yeah. I'm going to finish with my last question, which is if there's anybody out there currently listening who, who is in the position of, of maybe feeling powerless, maybe not feeling powerless, but has a, a movement or a change or a conversation that they want to drive that they believe is important and they haven't begun yet. What, what one piece of advice would you give to them?
0: Make up your mind what you want to do and have a bit of courage and go for it. And there's no such thing as failure. It's just that it didn't work out. I don't use the word failure at all because it's just that you've tried your best and it didn't work out, but go for it. Just don't listen to other people. What does your heart tell you? What does your mind tell you? What did you think is right? That is more important. And it doesn't matter whether you went to school or college or didn't go at all. But that is the most important message I want to give. Show some courage. Today, people have very little courage to do what they want to do. The Lord is listening to others. But I think the most important thing is that you have to do it yourself. You have to do it yourself. No other way, no other choice.
1: Bunker, thank you so much.
0: I'm very glad
1: for making the time. I know it's a big time for you right now.
0: No, I'm so glad I could uh, say something. I hope lots of people are listening.
1: When it happens, we'll get you back and you can tell us all about it.
0: Wow! Thank you very much. I enjoyed myself. Let me say.
1: Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, julymasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you but it is jam packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20 plus years of doing this work. Not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.